0: Welcome to Coping with COVID-19. This editorially independent program from the editors of Modern Aesthetics Magazine and Practical Dermatology Magazine is made possible with advertising from Care Credit. This is Episode Three: Interruptions and Opportunities in Drug Development and Access, featuring Dr. Neil Batia, Peter Pitts, and Dr. Allison Ehrlich.
1: So hi, I'm uh, I'm Neil Latiam, I'm a Chief Medical Editor of uh, Practical Dermatology. I'm here with Mr. Peter Pitts, who is a, a professor in a medical school in France, as well as a Deputy Commissioner at the FDA. Uh, Peter, thanks for uh, coming on with me. And uh, I just wanted to kind of get a state of affairs of how the FDA is handling, uh, fast-tracking some medications through with all the current buzz on hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, vaccines. I mean, it's it's uh, kind of a, you know, hyper-anxiety soup for a lot of physicians out there. Just give me a, just your big lay of the land and, a, and we can kind of figure out from there where we wanna go. Sure,
0: well, first of all, I'm a former associate commissioner, but thank you for the promotion. Always uh, appreciated. it. Absolutely. I think what the FDA is doing now is they are, they've approved for emergency use uh, some existing therapeutics, uh, chloroquine, uh, erythromycin, as well as, as some others. And even though these uh, drugs for these additional and in indications for COVID-19 are still in human trials, uh, they, they've also, like I just said, been uh, green-lighted for emergency use, which means that physicians can use them at their own discretion uh, for COVID-19 patients while capturing the data and feeding to the FDA. So that gives us two streams of data on your classical uh, randomized clinical trial evidence as well as real-world evidence uh, from current use. The uh, the reasons that these drugs are being used for COVID patients is they seem to reduce the severity of the symptoms, as well as shorten the uh, uh, duration of the virus, all good. But clearly, you know, there's a lot of fear around that that could cause shortages for people that are already using these drugs for chronic use, whether it's uh, lupus or malaria, or certainly rheumatoid arthritis. So, you know, what needs to be communicated to physicians, certainly those who are putting in 20-hour shifts, is that, you know, these drugs really are for people that need them the most, just like People, not everybody needs a ventilator. Not everybody needs these, these types of therapeutics for 85% of people with the virus going home, getting plenty of rest and drinking fluids will, will get the job done. So making sure that we give these drugs to the right people so that we don't face shortages for those who are using it for other chronic conditions. Yeah, I think, and we were talking a little bit offline about that exact issue with
1: dermatology because there's there perception out there that dermatologists don't use a lot of these drugs and that, you know, right or wrong, it's something that dermatologists have to kind of make clear to the patients as well as the pharmacies that we are on the front lines for managing discoid lupus for dermatomyositis for, I mean, these conditions may not be as prevalent, but those patients rely on those drugs. And then of course you get the patients with the systemic conditions and dermatologists are still part of their care.
2: Right. And
1: my, my bigger concern is on the, if you look at the commercial aspect of, could there be price gouging and some sort of uh commercialization of, of the the absence or the lack of hydroxychloroquine in the market what what would you say should we be aware of that or or taking that on even before
0: it becomes a problem well there are a couple of issues i guess firstly is physician education you know it's very important to let physicians know that you know patients with covid-19 are going to ask for these drugs they're widely promoted people know that they're out there and physicians have to you know build up their mental calluses Tell people no. I'm sorry. You're not in the cohort that gets these drugs. We're rationing. We don't want to cause shortages. So that's one issue, kind of a co- continuing medical education perspective. I'm also concerned that patients uh, will start going onto the internet to try to find uh, non-legitimate ways to, to get these drugs and, and hoard them. I mean, we've heard stories about people who, are, who think chloroquine is in fish tanks. Oh uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know so. You, and all, you know, that's what fear breeds. So I think, you know, one of the jobs that physicians have here is to educate their patients as to, you know, who will and who will not get these medicines. You know, from a dermatologist perspective, you don't want a patient who, whose condition is under control you know, for years, all of a sudden not have access to, to these drugs and similarly be driven to the internet and sources that might compromise uh, their treatments. So one of, one of the
1: things about the azithromycin problem is patients who jump to that immediately, just like years before when they say, well, I have a sore throat, I need a ZPEC. And, you know, are we are we treating people who they think they have COVID-19 and then they just turn out to have a simple URI or anything else, or even a simple case of sinusitis? What, what should we be counseling patients on jumping to antibiotics? You know, because again, you know, when we come out of this, there's still going to be talk about antibiotic resistance and everything else we've done to create a different problem. Where would you Counsel
0: us on how to make that talking point well you know I've been dealing with the concept of uh, overuse of antibiotics for a long time that's why my hair is almost all gone <laughs> and I you know my the bad news is that we've hardly moved the needle at all people yeah. still think that you know viruses can be treated with antibiotics and you, you can tell them otherwise and there's not it doesn't it doesn't register because they, people want solutions yeah. so, so again you know I think that that's a lesson learned just giving people the facts and there's no fact you know, more clear than antibiotics don't treat viruses. Yeah. Uh, if we can't get that message across, and clearly we can't, we failed, you know, we, we've got to retool and rethink this proposition because if we come out of COVID with an increase in antibiotic resistance issues, you know, that's not, uh, that's not entire victory. So just switching gears to uh, the topic of vaccines, I know this is
1: still something again that, you know, patients will have unrealistic expectations or even think Know, in the rearview mirror and say, why isn't there a vaccine? Why haven't we made one? Vaccines aren't something that take overnight to make. I mean, these are nine to 12 month projects at the, at the earliest. Well,
0: and please, yeah, so would you give be your time I, right there. I think relative to vaccines, what I'm hearing is uh, 10 months to a year, which from a vaccine development perspective is, is pretty fast. Yeah. I, have to, I have to explain to people that it's not just figuring out the science problem. It's also figuring out the manufacturing issues, which are extraordinarily complex. Uh, just as they are with, with, the, with the annual flu vaccine. Uh, but you also have to explain to people that you know, short of a vaccine, which is not going to help us you know, during the current crisis, is the issue of, for, for example, uh, how to use convalescent plasma, you know, how to, how to find people that have that have had COVID-19, that have the antibodies in their system, and using that plasma, not so much as a vaccine, but a very potent treatment. So there yeah. are things that ultimately lead you to a vaccine. It, it's not uh, like television where, from one commercial break to the next, you have a vaccine and everything goes back to normal. There are iterative steps here from, from a therapeutic perspective that are going to help us get through this.
1: Yeah. But then, of course, we worry about serum sickness and all the other consequence of antibody-mediated therapies. And then, you know, you'd, you'd hope there isn't some black market where people are just uh, sharing blood and saying, well, yeah, I had the, had the virus. I'm going to give you mine. I mean, that, you know, these are disasters, of course, you, you wouldn't want to imagine. Well,
0: but, that, goes, you know, that goes back to an education perspective because that absolutely will happen. Yeah. People, oh, exactly. will, people will go on the internet because, of course, everything you read on the internet is true, and people oh, yeah. are, people are desperate for solutions, and they'll go, "Wow, let, Well, let's let's go into my cousin's basement. He's a I think he's a PhD in archaeology, so he's a doctor. Yeah. So maybe he can set up a blood transfusion like on television, and I'll walk out uh, cured or immune. And uh, you know, as silly as that sounds, as we're talking about it, I think we have to assume it's going to happen. Now we have again it comes down to public education, not just as to what to do socially, social distancing and sheltering in place, but clearly what not to do. And to my mind at the top of what not to do is uh, self-treat and act like a doctor when you're not.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we joke all the time about Dr. Google and you know his, his PA Facebook. And, you know, this is where, again, you get a lot of nervous anxious people who've been quarantined and their only hope
0: is to go to social media and click on the one link that's going to get them into trouble. Yeah, that's also, you know, we're all, and we've been programmed over the last, pick a number, 25 years, to expect kind of a magic pill solution, uh, where, oh, from, yeah. where from one day to the next, the problem just kind of magically disappears, and that's simply not the case. But it's, again, it's hard to tell people things that they, they don't want to hear, and this is one, this is one of those situations. Yeah, and it,
1: it kind of holds into the other question I was going to ask you is about all these other physicians from different specialties being pulled into the front lines to, you know, again, almost in the, in the concept of the mass unit, you know, all hands on deck, which is obviously in New York and a lot of bigger cities essential to, to get people, you know, stable. But when we come out from this on the other side, what, what's going to prevent the, the lawyers and the, and the vultures from coming out and saying, were you hurt by a, a non-trained physician who treated you for coronavirus? Or what, what is the quality assurance of what was done in the battlefield? I mean, again, these are questions for maybe
0: September, October while we're still well, in survival mode but more well, things say, you know, a lot of i mean i can visualize the tv ads for patients being harmed by uh, covid-19 treatments you know to my mind those people should be taken out and hung up by their toes yeah. but, but you know we li- we live in a society where you know those people exist and they advertise heavily and there's there's money to be made in front of sympathetic juries and again that's why it's important that the fda issued an emergency use uh, regulation relative for example to chloroquine alone. So that at least there's some federal preemptive standing here for doctors that want to use the drugs. Because if doctors realize that the treatments that they're giving patients, whether it's using ventilators that were developed uh, prior to a uh, more robust approval standard or drugs being used off-label, um, you know, they're humans. You know, they're they're going to think twice about doing what they know medically is the right thing. Yeah. I
1: mean, I, I would do what I can to help, but I don't know where I would begin as a dermatologist. Um, just switching gears to you know clinical research. I mean our, our site as well as many others are involved in clinical trials that are ongoing with many other therapies, and they've all taken basically you know the breaks in enrollment and screening. But where do you see, you know, the current state of clinical research being impacted by what's going on with the pandemic and the lack of availability of quality assessments of patients? I mean, we're having to do some with telemedicine. obviously many other sites have you know put enrollment on hold. Where would you see, clinical research rebounding
0: after this is all said and done? Well, sort of you know randomized clinical trials on uh, chloroquine alone or azithromycin or, or any of the existing or new an- antivirals, I think any other clinical research, certainly clinical trials, are going to grind to a halt. You just think about it, uh, hospitals, hospital beds, physicians, nurses, uh, otherwise engaged, patients sheltering at home. There really is no opportunity, uh, even with uh, vir- virtual you know, capabilities to take blood or ha- run certain types of tests. So I think the bad news is that the foresee- for the foreseeable future, a lot of these programs are simply going to halt. Yeah. And that's certainly not a, not a good thing, but it's, it's, it's the practical reality. Another issue is for drugs that are, you know, relatively f- further down the pike in, in phase three or even post phase three, the opportunities for the FDA to inspect their manufacturing facilities are similarly curtailed. So that's going to stop new drugs that have kind of done all the, the spade work to come to market. Yeah, because you think about some of the new biologic therapies for
1: psoriasis, etanercept, dermatitis, the Janus kinase inhibitors, everything that's in motion. You, you have patients who are in, in significant anxiety about their risks of not only contracting the virus, but is, am I immunosuppressed? Is there anything I have to worry about when you know the virus you know, contagion is maybe a little less and I resume therapy or I'm still on? And we have a lot of talking points with the patients, and the Academy of Dermatology has done a lot for education of the physicians. But from the FDA standpoint, is is there anything else that we should be educating our patients on, or is there a public campaign that should go forward?
0: Well, I think what has to happen, too, is you you have a lot of patients currently on experimental therapy within clinical trials. And how are they going to get uh, the drugs? How are they going to to actually pursue their treatment? I mean, what do you do to patients who who have been weaned off of their existing treatment, Put on experimental treatment, and now all of a sudden they have no treatment at all. Absolutely, that's yeah. another another tough situation. So I I would say from a from a uh, most important perspective, you have to make sure that patients who are on experimental treatment either have access to those treatments or, or somehow uh, brought back to their existing therapies. You can't leave people with no treatment at all. That's that's also well, some, some of our
1: some of our bigger nightmares are are coming from you know Medicaid and a couple other insurance carriers that are saying okay, well during the crisis we're we want all patients off biologics. And it's like this, this is not a mandate that's for patient safety. And the worst thing that could happen is to disrupt the existing therapy based on phobias that are not brought to light. So it, it, it kind right. of goes on all ends. We have to make sure that we're all standing together on this. That's right. And again, I think this all kind of
0: circles back. Kind of the red thread here is education. Uh, and I think a heavy dose of physician education. The problem is physicians are busy you know nurses are busy i think you know the uh, while we hear a lot about doctors doing these these 20 hour shifts and that's heroic you know uh, think about the nurses and the and the, the on the hospital techs or it, or in this as well you know the the last thing we want coming out from the other end of this tunnel are you know, healthcare professionals so burned out that they can't really go back to regular business uh, for 6 months mm-hmm.
1: that, that that that's what we're looking at as well as Again, the lack of sustained medical education—we we rely on conferences and and you know consistent CME infusion to keep our brains you know moving—and all of that, like you said, is not only at a halt, but it's it's actually moving backwards, which is unfortunate.
0: Right. I think you know I think maybe a, a little bit of optimism is you know I would hope that again once we're past this first wave of COVID disaster, that the FDA recognizes how it can, in fact, on a more regular and normal basis, do things more swiftly. So. One thing I'll finish up with it is
1: this concept of new normal. You know, we've we've gone to this, this new vernacular of social distancing and new normal and everything catchphrase wise. What where do you see the education on hygiene? Just simple hygiene, washing your hands from the coming out of the bathroom, or education for the anti-vaxxers who've been, you know, now all of a sudden are on the front lines of saying, Well, vaccinate me, I'm sick. Or, you know, where where do we change the di- or the, the dialogue for patients overall and once you know, once we come out the other side?
0: you know, every year, you know, in a normal year, I spend a lot of time talking to people about the value of getting a flu shot and the value of washing your hands. And they, people say to me, whether they're just people that I know or people in the media say, well, really, you know, what, how important it really is it about washing your hands? And I go, it's incredibly important. It's the most important thing you can do. And they look at you like it couldn't possibly be that simple. So hopefully that lesson will be learned. I'm dubious. Yeah. You know, we'll, 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 let's see what's happened you know, from a, a, a flu shot perspective. Similarly, it's hard to tell people, you, you, tell, you tell people, get a flu shot, get a flu shot, get a flu shot. They don't listen. They don't recognize the herd effect. And then yeah. and then when you expand the herd effect conversation to childhood vaccinations, you know, you, yeah. you, you, your, your head explodes. Again, this this is, I mean, from an epidemiological perspective, this is not complicated stuff. But people look at you like you're speaking to them in some foreign language. So I think, again, we, we've got to find some new ways to communicate and maybe the COVID, p- convincing people explain to them the value of sheltering in place explaining the value and the, the consequences of social distancing why that works maybe, maybe maybe we can use that opening to discuss the value and, the, and the, cru- the crucial nature of vaccinations
1: yeah absolutely i think that would be a great step forward for a lot of people just to again rely on social media or their bad bad information to make their minds up i mean i i, I can tell you in the clinic you know we all miss shaking hands with patients. You know, we have a lot of patients who, you know, give us hugs because they feel better. And, you know, the, the concept of treating people like they're potential contaminants is, is is really becoming disheartening.
0: Right? Right. Yeah, you know, I did a town hall in New York before COVID on people that weren't getting their kids vaccinated for measles, as well as other things. And I said, listen, you guys, you're, you're healthcare terrorists. Anybody that's walking around, any, any child walking around without a, their vaccination is a... Is a, is a walking time bomb. Yeah, absolutely. I think similarly when people are you know, going to Cabo for spring break or socializing in parks or going to parties, you know, they are healthcare terrorists. And I think oh, that maybe this will help us get that message across.
1: Well, it's funny, I mean, and you probably you know, remember the movies like Outbreak and Contagion and all these horror story movies. And yet now you look at the empty highways and the empty restaurants and the empty everything of life right now, like, this is the movie that
0: we didn't want to see, and now it's happening. I noticed the other day that Contagion is uh, trending on Netflix. So Mm -hmm. hopefully the right message comes out of that.
2: So particularly, hydroxychloroquine is used very frequently for patients with several uh, rheumatological conditions such as lupus, and dermatomyositis. Uh, Chloroquine is a little more toxic, so while it's used, it is not as frequently used as hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine, these medications actually have antiviral uh, capacity, and and that is really where the evidence is um, thought to, or the concept that they would work, is thought to lay. Um, There are some antidotal reports that are coming out from physicians that have been using this. Um, There are some not well-controlled studies that have come out of, I believe, France and China. Uh, However, these are not our um, preferred type of study design. They are not double-blinded, placebo-controlled studies. I think some of the dangers are that patients that need these medications for specific rheumatological conditions such as lupus and dermatomyositis are very concerned at this time that they will not be able to stay on their medication or they may have a gap in ability to take their medication. Uh, So the other big concern is that uh, these medications need to be used as prescribed and under, when under the care of physicians. Uh, there have been some cases of people overdosing on medications when taking it on their own. Were, uh, there was a couple in Arizona that took chloroquine that they had in their house use in their aquarium and the husband died the wife was critically ill from this there were several cases of overdoses in nigeria and actually the fda came out with a warning in the last few days about uh, not using hydroxychloroquine i'm sorry not using chloroquine that uh, was for aquarium use so that's a pretty serious concern and there's also the risk of QT prolongation with these medications and use of azithromycin and several other medications. So that would be a concern in patients that have pre-existing cardiac issues and are at risk for that. So I think it is important to try to prescribe at least a 90 day supply And can talk to your patients about, if they're not flaring, try to stretch out their dosing, maybe dose once a day, take one dose a day instead of twice a day. The other thing is patients should try to avoid flaring. So many of our patients with lupus and dermatomyositis, UV exposure can cause flares. Thus, we should really try to encourage our patients to avoid UV exposure if that is a trigger for flaring their disease. So the AAD actually uh, sent a letter in combination, it was written um, with the Arthritis Foundation, the American College of Rheumatology and the lupus foundation and the letter was actually sent to vice president pence and also cc'd on this letter was mitch mcconnell um, schumer um, nancy pelosi kevin mccarthy and the united states governors Association. so these organizations did reach out to our legislative uh, representatives and bodies to inform them of our concerns about patients not being able to get medications and uh, we as members of the AAD also can individually reach out to our legislative representatives with our concerns for our patients and advocate for our patients about the potential for drug shortages.